Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, April 17th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. As the coronavirus crisis continues here in the U.S., the death toll rising. States like New York experiencing prolonged peaks of hospitalizations and patient deaths. Plus, President Trump unveils a plan to reopen the country, conceding that the decision will ultimately rest with individual governors. And a look at the impact of coronavirus on the nation's food supply, from meatpacking plants to small farms. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. As the coronavirus crisis continues here in the U.S., the death toll still growing. Some states like New York experience prolonged peaks of hospitalizations and patient deaths. The U.S. now reporting more than 600,000 cases as President Trump unveils a plan to reopen the country, but the president conceding that the decision will ultimately rest with individual governors. And a look at the impact of coronavirus on the nation's food supply from meatpacking plants to small farms. All that and so much more today on You News. Hello and welcome to You News for this Friday, April 17th. I'm Andrea Linares. And as the U.S. approaches a peak of coronavirus cases, the death toll continues to rise and reach unimaginable numbers. Thousands continue to die as people grow desperate to simply get back to work. Lorraine Caceres has the latest on this situation. On Thursday, the U.S. hit a new record high, 4,591 people dying of coronavirus in one day, the number nearly doubling since Wednesday. The crisis hitting nursing homes really hard. In Andover, New Jersey, a grim discovery inside this 500-bed facility. 68 residents have died since January. Almost half are confirmed to have died from the virus, along with two nurses. We're going to have to figure out what went on here. Did they take all the steps uh, necessary up front with protective equipment um, for their for the staff? Did they uh, make sure they put everyone segregate out those who are more positive? The nursing home's owner saying in a statement, the health and safety of our residents and staff is our utmost priority and responsibility. Ownership and administration is working around the clock to ensure we are able to resolve the pandemic. We do not know if she's still with us. Unfortunately, she could be one of those bodies that they let pile up. Meanwhile, with unemployment numbers surpassing 20 million in record time, across the country, growing protests. I would rather die COVID than live in this. In Richmond, Virginia, people desperate to get back to work. And in Alabama, some businesses planning to defy state orders and reopen today. I'm fully aware of the risks that I'm taking. In hard-hit Michigan, the unemployment rate is now a staggering 25 percent, the third highest in the nation. Cassandra Archer was laid off four weeks ago, and she still has not been able to apply for unemployment. I've called their number that they said over 100 times, more than one day, and I will get through, I'll get on hold, and then maybe 20 minutes goes by, and then I'll be hung up on. And it seems Governor Whitmer of Michigan will not give in to the pressure of desperate citizens, saying she is guiding her decisions by medical experts and needs to see a sustained decline in infections and more testing before lifting restrictions. Back to you, Andrea.
Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Latinos in the United States overwhelmingly believe that the coronavirus crisis is the most important problem facing President Trump and Congress. In a new poll by the civic organization Somos Healthcare, 62% say that addressing the coronavirus crisis is the most important issue right now. Meanwhile, when asked how the crisis is personally affecting them, 22% say they have a relative or a friend who is sick with COVID-19, and 35% say they or someone living in their household has lost their job due to this pandemic. And as the economic situation here in the U.S. continues to worsen, the Trump administration has released new federal suggestions to reopen America. The plan outlines three phases to get the economy up and running again. But the White House is acknowledging that the decision ultimately falls in the hands of governors. President Trump laying out his blueprint to reopen the country. America wants to be open and Americans want to be open. The administration calls for a three-phase approach to reopen, beginning in areas least affected by COVID-19. But the president says governors will decide when to lift restrictions. States would enter phase one after they see a two-week decline in the number of people with COVID symptoms and in the percentage of people testing positive for the virus. While the vulnerable still shelter in place, working from home will still be encouraged. People would still be advised to maintain social distancing and avoid socializing in groups of more than 10. Phase two will relax some social distancing efforts. You could see places like restaurants, movie theaters and bars reopening with social distancing protocols. Schools would also reopen and elective surgeries and non-essential travel will be allowed again. Not every state, not every region is going to do it at the same time. Sooner or later, we will get to the point, hopefully sooner, with safety as the most important thing, to a point where we can get back to some form of normality. Phase three means normal life would resume as much as possible. Seven Midwestern states are already working together on a plan to reopen. Seven states on the East Coast and three states on the West Coast forging similar alliances. Others are taking it slowly. Our thought process is right now is that we would look at what areas in the state of Kansas could we start using these take it slow guidelines uh, to reopen. I'm still saying stay at home, stay safe. We're still not out of this. We still haven't peaked. In hard-hit New York, shutdowns have been extended until at least May 15th. Governors and health officials alike agree the key to the future is testing and tracking the contacts of people who are infected to prevent further spread. The big fear, though, a potential second spike in some states. I mean, let's face it, this, this is uncharted water. There may be some setbacks that we may have to pull back a little and then go forward. There are certain milestones that states should meet prior to reopening and moving from phase to phase. These include a decrease in COVID-19 cases over a 14-day period, a return to pre-crisis conditions in hospitals as well, and also a sufficient supply of protective equipment for medical personnel. And as a national debate over when and how to reopen continues, the city of Jacksonville, Florida, making a controversial decision. City leaders announcing that their beaches will reopen this evening, but only during limited hours. 
Mayor Lenny Curry cites the Florida governor's executive order about coronavirus social distancing. He points out it allows for recreational exercise like swimming and surfing. Curry says parks will be open, but pavilions and other spots for large gatherings will remain closed. Now for more on the president's unveiling of new guidelines to reopen the country, let's go to Chris Liu. He's a former senior White House aide to President Obama. Thanks so much for joining us today on U News, Chris. Thank you. So what's your overall reaction to these guidelines that were announced? Well, I think they make sense because the decision is being left to governors, which is what it should be. Uh, and But I think the critical part of this is really testing. Uh, there just are, are not enough tests that are going around right now uh, for states to properly monitor, um, you know, what the actual condition is in their areas. And that's a critical function that the federal government should be playing a role in that. And unfortunately, President Trump seems to have abdicated all of that responsibility uh, for providing uh, that those uh, critical testing uh, supplies to the states. We have seen a battle between governors and the federal government. It has been on display since the beginning of this outbreak. Now, from the battle over supplies and ventilators to testing, what does the unveiling of these guidelines show us about the relation at this point since the president said governors will be able to make that decision as to when to reopen? Well, I think the relationship is still tense. And I think with this president, given how unpredictable he is, it's hard to tell where he is from day to day. He started the week by saying he had the total authority to make decisions for what happened in this country. And now he's basically told the states, it's all up to you. Uh, and he continues to send mixed messages to his supporters. Uh, just today, for instance, he seems to be encouraging his supporters to go out and try to defy um, these social distancing shutdown orders as well. And so, uh, you know, you can never really tell with this president. Now, Chris, this is something that you mentioned in terms of testing. This roadmap for reopening relies heavily on increasing the testing capacity. Is testing every American maybe more than once a year even feasible? I don't know if it's feasible, but we certainly need to do better than where we are right now. We've tested about 3 million people in this country. That's about 1% of the total population. And each day we add about 140,000 new tests. Uh, most experts seem to believe that we need to be testing about a million people a day to get up to the levels of countries like South Korea, Germany, um, and Canada. Um, but we, we certainly need to be in a regimen where we, we can test not only people who may potentially be infected, but more regions of the country as well. You continue to hear complaints from governors that they just can't get the, 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 the tests, and so they're just not comfortable uh, absent that information to make more decisions about reopening the country. Now let's turn to the economy. A staggering 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment so far in the last four weeks. Could the Trump administration have handled the economic fallout in a better way, in your opinion? We know some people already received their stimulus checks and others are still waiting. Well, obviously, look, there will need to be investigations about the 70-day period of time in January, February to early March, where this administration ignored a lot of clear warnings about this growing crisis, not just overseas, but in the United States. And had they taken actions earlier to try to impose some uh, shutdown requirements, 
that could have probably alleviated some of the public health and economic damage. But at this point going forward, it's important to provide as much relief as possible to unemployed workers, as well as small businesses, to provide some level of financial stability to them so they can ride out these shutdown orders and stay at home. Uh, because the public health consideration should be guiding the decision to reopen the economy, not the unemployment rates. These are tough times in our nation. Thanks so much, Chris Liu, former Obama White House senior cabinet member. Stay safe. Thank you. And right now, health experts are working around the clock to find a treatment for the coronavirus. And a doctor leading up a clinical trial for a drug called remdesivir says they're getting good results with most patients going home in less than a week. Multiple studies in animals showed this drug could prevent and treat coronaviruses related to COVID-19. But experts caution that there is no control group in this study, which means it's hard to point to the drug itself causing potential patient improvement. Today, we know the identity of the sailor who died after contracting the coronavirus. The U.S. Navy says Chief Petty Officer Charles Robert Thacker Jr. died from COVID-19. The 41-year-old was being treated at the U.S. Naval Hospital Guam. He tested positive for the virus back in March while he was assigned to the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Thacker was removed from the ship and placed in isolation. Officials say his condition worsened last Thursday and he was placed in intensive care. He passed away on Monday. Other crew members have tested positive for the coronavirus. Officials say they remain in isolation at a controlled location on Naval Base Guam. The coronavirus is so ferocious that sometimes even decontamination isn't enough to stop it. As Peggy Carranza explains, this is an issue that is now playing out for first responders on the job. Female, the husband was tested positive, is recovering. This was the alarming description of a patient from firefighters wearing intimidating hazmat suits that seconds later were disinfected before the eyes of scared residents in Yonkers, New York. What resonated the most is that the deadly COVID-19 remained in the apartment where four first responders were about to enter with double masks and gloves but without protective suits. We're going to take you over to St. Joe's, okay? We'll get you checked out. Hopefully you go in and out. But I want to make sure we get your breathing under control, okay? Because okay? if it was bad yesterday and it's worse today, I don't want it to get worse tomorrow. Social distancing is also non-existent in this line of work. <laughs> For these first responders, the risk of infection is directly proportional to the calls that still overwhelm their emergency service. The volume of calls has changed since the pandemic started. Everyone is also getting sick in the company, said this communications supervisor. Out of 500 employees, at least 30 contracted the virus, and some have even returned to work after recovering. They say they take protective measures, but with 14 emergencies per day, contagion seems inevitable even though they still try to delay the contagion by decontaminating the ambulances that they now only use to transfer patients without a relative. You can only do but so much. But when it comes down to it, um, 
It's just really, really hard. I need money to come back home. A hard pill to swallow for both the relatives of the patient and paramedics who try to save lives at the expense of their own health. In Yonkers, New York, Peggy Carranza, U News. Nearly 650 employees at the massive Smithfield pork processing plant in South Dakota tested positive for COVID-19. The outbreak so significant, it's threatening to disrupt the food supply chain in our nation. A large portion of the 3,700 workers at that plant are immigrants, many of them from Latin America, who themselves have tested positive or are now out of a job for the time being. Let's go to Nancy Reynosa. She's a community activist and president of Que Pasa Sioux Falls. Thanks so much for joining us, Nancy. Thank you for having me. Nancy, you've been talking to a lot of the families impacted by this outbreak. How are they doing right now? Um, it's very disheartening right now. We did not expect a surge uh, this big of so many families being impacted at once. And we grew from uh, just in a matter of days up to uh, over you know, 600 people that were, were directly to, um, related with the Smithfield company that are affected with COVID-19. Smithfield Foods is one of the biggest meat processors in the country, and this plant is among the country's largest. When did the outbreak exactly start, and what measures at that point did the owners institute to avoid an outbreak? So the outbreak started around the end of, or middle or end of March, but we do have reports that it wasn't reported until the 23rd to the health department. And... It was just by the time that um, a lot of people wanted protection, by the time that they started, we started to sound the alarm because a lot of employee employees started to call us. By that time, it was too late to do anything. The employer said that they did provide masks, but a lot of the masks that they had were masks that were made out of, they're for the beard, they're for the men's beard. They're not for the, um, uh, they're not going to protect you from anything. They also did not provide um any anything that could help them separate from each other during the working at the line as well. Nancy, right now our viewers are looking at exclusive pictures that were taken inside that plant, inside that facility. Can you describe exactly what we're looking at, what was taking place there? Yes, yeah, so what we're looking at is the company did implement these cardboard boxes to be put on the tables so that when they were eating, they wouldn't, you know, talk to their neighbor. But we know that COVID-19 lives in cardboard uh, a long time, so I don't know how, how hygienic that is. Um, a lot of these people called us telling us that they were being let into work with a fever over 100.3 or just, you know, if they felt fine, they could go into work. As we see these images, in your opinion, do you think the owners of the plant did enough to protect their workers or did they wait too long, perhaps? Definitely not. They did. They waited too long. They knew this was coming. How long did we know that this was coming? Uh, we knew that there were going to be people getting sick from COVID-19, but they did not do anything to implement something that would prevent these employees from getting sick, and especially at this rate. It's just, you can see the negligence just in the rate of employees being sick right now. We know that South Dakota's governor has been criticized for not issuing a statewide stay-at-home order. What impact is this outbreak having on the Sioux Falls healthcare system in general? 
In general, right now, we just uh, started to get a little bit more busy within the hospital sink. Thankfully, there have only been seven deaths, but, you know, seven deaths is enough uh, for a small city like us. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it shouldn't have happened uh, in, in this way. Although we knew it was coming, this was, it's hitting all of the country. But um, the governor keeps not wanting to shut down the state, and a lot of people wanted to shut it down. And I don't know what impact this is going to have. I honestly, it's, it's just, it's disproportionate at this point. Every life matters. Thank you so much, Nancy Reynosa, community activist in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Please take care. In the midst of the coronavirus crisis, teachers in Hawaii have another reason to be concerned. They are facing a 20% cut in pay. Experienced teachers are worried about their financial future heading to retirement, while newer teachers worry if they can afford to stay in their chosen career. The proposed state pay cuts wouldn't just apply to teachers, but other state workers as well. State legislators are not endorsing the governor's idea. No one knows if the proposal could end up being a furlough or a full salary cut. Elsewhere around the country, the mayor of Albuquerque finding himself in a battle with local corrections officials. Mayor Tim Keller says that police officers continue to arrest suspects as they always do, but he says the local jail is refusing to house them as they await trial. Keller says it's not just a danger to the public, but also for officers patrolling the streets. Jail officials release a statement saying, quote, the county is finalizing a formal response regarding the mayor's concerns. And now listen to this. Imagine the current stress you would face if several members of your family worked in the healthcare industry. Well, that's the reality for one family in Los Angeles. A mother and her daughter standing up in the fight of their lives as nurses on the front lines against COVID-19. Here's Salvador Duran with their story. Among the thousands of health professionals battling COVID-19 in the country's emergency rooms in Los Angeles, California, we found Sandra Castillo and her daughter Fabiola, two relentless fighters who are trying to save lives as they take care of patients in grave and critical condition. This is what we do. We, we try our best. At a young age, Fabiola decided to follow her mom's footsteps. She's worked as a registered nurse for three years. Her mother, Sandra, has been a health professional for 16 years. They have now teamed up on the front lines of the fight against this deadly enemy. And for you, what does it feel to have like your mom also do the same thing you do? It's scary because she's my mom and she's, you know, she's older and she's more uh, susceptible to getting sick and um, I just, I wanted to be careful mm -hmm. and I'd like her to not do it, yeah. but she mm -hmm. loves what she does and yeah. I'm very proud of her. It's very hard to say. We say too many times, just uh, be careful, take care of it, but it's hard. It's very hard. Mm -hmm. I'm so scared, but... We try. Since the virus was detected in the United States, both have had to alter their routines. They no longer visit each other and they only communicate through the internet or via cell phone. But Fabiola also has a 13-month-old baby girl, Maya, who she needs to protect. She says for her, there's no such a thing as an extreme measure. It, it makes you really paranoid. It 
you try to do everything for the patient, everything that you normally do, you make them comfortable, but you can't spend so much time at bedside like you normally would because you also have to limit the amount of exposure that you have. So it makes it very lonely for these patients and it's very mm -hmm. sad to see. Mm -hmm. The risks are very high for nurses like them. This past weekend, one of their colleagues died at another hospital. Valerie Viveros was just 21 years old. She was a nursing assistant, but the coronavirus ended her short-lived career. That's why Fabiola's mom tells her daily how much she loves her. Te amo, a term of endearment, a bond that will never break between them. Someone else also feels very proud of Fabiola and her mom, Marvin Castillo, a worried but supportive husband and father. My wife is, uh, my daughter is uh, my heroine because uh, she likes the, the work, she helps the, the people. We also asked Fabi and her mother Sandra if they ever thought of quitting, and their response was never. In Los Angeles, I'm Salvador Duran, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Farmers around the country are facing immense pressure as they deal with the sudden lack of demands from restaurants and the possibility of losing employees to the coronavirus quarantine. But in South Florida, one group is stepping in to help farmers and those who may be going hungry. Here's Romina Leon. From the ground to the hands of these farm workers who get up early each day to plant and harvest produce that will end up in the homes of countless of Americans, even as the coronavirus crisis continues. Thank God we still have work, but a lot of these products are being thrown away while others are being donated. That is the reality at the Torber Farm in Homestead, Florida, along with hundreds of other farms across the country. Part of the crops that are being saved are being housed in these warehouses. Here, they are cleaned and then sorted. Here we check for crops that have gone bad. Whatever is rotted, whatever looks bad gets thrown away. This is the work of Mayelis Lopez, who works this line along with others, processing and packing green beans and zucchini. These are the same vegetables that end up at farm share. The organization receives a variety of supplies crates of vegetables, fruit, and canned items. But how do they get here? When products don't meet the requirements of the supermarket, those vegetables and fruit get returned to the farmers, who then donate them to us. At the moment, there aren't enough people working to handle this process. And so sometimes, items simply get thrown away. Another solution? Volunteers who wait in a line dozens of cars long to help donate the food. 
estamos dando la comida a las personas que están. We're giving this food to those in need, those with children and those who are sick. We deliver it right to their door. Pastor Carmen Sabater is helping at least 60 families. It is an effort that starts in the field and ends with desperately needed food in the hands of those who need it most. Reported by Danai Rivero, this is Romina Leon for U News. And now to New York, where a pregnant woman recently gave birth but was unable to meet her child for over a week. That's just part of the new reality for some soon-to-be mothers in the era of coronavirus. Blanca Rosa Vilches spoke with that mother about her birth experience, part of which she doesn't even recall. It took several minutes for Yanira Soriano to come out of the hospital. The medical staff that took care of her was lying in the hallway cheering her on. It was so special to see my son because the doctors thought that I was not going to survive. Because of the critical nature of her pneumonia, she had to go under general anesthesia and be put into a medically induced coma and be put on a ventilator, so she was not awake when her baby was born and did not hear the baby cry or have any opportunity to meet him right after his birth. And it was yesterday when Walter, the father, introduced little Walter to his mother, a week and a half after she brought him into the world. So by delivering the baby, it was hoped that that would improve her clinical situation and her breathing. Similarly, when you have a very, very bad COVID pneumonia, your oxygen levels become very low. As a prevention, hospitals ask pregnant women to give tested before giving birth. Out of the 217 women that went to the hospital to give birth, 33 had coronavirus, 29, however, didn't have any symptoms. Yanira knows the next thing she is going to do. As soon as I can, I will go to church to thank God for my baby and my life. In Hoboken, New Jersey, Blanca Rosa Vilches, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.